Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Happy New Year. Take your Bibles and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Bible, the fifth book of Moses. Very near the front. If you need a Bible, there's a stack of them in the back, on the back table. And on that, those Bibles, it's on page 177. We'll read beginning in verse 1 and read through verse 22. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today. And you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother, as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, and you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness, with a loud voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. I think I can almost guarantee that everyone here has seen either the 1956 Ten Commandments, one with Charlton Heston as Moses, or the 1998 DreamWorks film, The Prince of Egypt. Do you know DreamWorks, the same people that brought you Shrek, 
also brought you the Prince of Egypt, so somehow. You've probably read through the book of Exodus, or you've been taught the story in Sunday school at least. But I'll kind of replay it shortly here. The people of God, the Hebrews, the children of Abraham, are enslaved by Pharaoh, who is the king, who is also worshipped as a god, in Egypt. And Pharaoh is concerned that the Hebrews are growing too numerous and they could revolt. So he commands that all their baby boys be thrown into the Nile to die. And Moses is born to a Hebrew couple. But instead of being thrown in the Nile to die, his family places him in a waterproofed basket. And so he floats down the river until he is found by Pharaoh's daughter. And she raises him as her own son. So now Moses is a member of the royal household that has enslaved and killed his own people. And when he grows up, he finds out about all of this, and he flees Egypt and ends up being just a shepherd in the wilderness. But God calls him back in the burning bush to deliver his people. And so he goes back to Pharaoh and speaks to him for God, saying, Let my people go. And Pharaoh doesn't listen. And so God sends ten plagues, judgment on Egypt. And the tenth one being the death of the firstborn son. Which the Hebrews don't suffer because God has told Moses to have all the Israelites, all the Hebrews, take a lamb and kill it and spread its blood on the doorposts and the top of the door of their houses. So that when the destroying angel who's coming through the land of Egypt to kill the firstborn son, as he's going through and killing this firstborn son of all the Egyptians, he sees the blood on the doorway and he passes over those houses. And so Pharaoh and all Egypt, after this last plague, send the Hebrews out of their land. And the Hebrews encamp on the shore of the Red Sea. And then Pharaoh brings his army out after them to kill all of them. And so God splits the Red Sea clean in two and leads his people through on dry land and then swallows up the whole army of their oppressors in the sea. And then, and only then, does God bring them to Mount Sinai, or Mount Horeb, and give them the law. And when I'm talking about the law, I mean the Ten Commandments. And what I want you to see today is how that this order of events helps us understand the Ten Commandments. Because the order of events proves to us that this law was not given as a means of gaining favor with God. It wasn't given as a means of gaining salvation. God did not come to his people and say, I see that you're in slavery. Here's my Ten Commandments. Keep them for a while and then, and then I'll, I'll do something for you. No, he came with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm 
to his people in slavery, helpless, hopeless, without anyone to deliver them. God came, brought them out, saved them. And then he said, here's my law. It's instructive for us. Because we see that the law is to teach them how to live as a people who have been saved, not to teach them how to get saved. The law was meant to teach them how to live righteous lives. Paul in Romans 9 calls it a law that would lead to righteousness. For a saved people, The law is what leads us to righteousness. Now, Paul does say that the law did not lead to righteousness for Israel. But notice why he says Israel failed to reach that righteousness. Romans 9. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. So what did God's people do wrong? Does Paul say they were wrong to try to live according to the law? No, he doesn't doesn't say that. He says they should have pursued the law. They should have kept the law in the right way. And if they had in the right way, pursued the law, then that would have led to righteousness for them. So then what was wrong? What does Paul say? He says they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. As if. It's not, but as if it were. They thought that by keeping the law, they were working up favor with God. But they weren't. Because there is nothing that anyone could ever do that could put God into their debt. No one has ever been so righteous, so good at keeping the law, at fulfilling God's commands, that God was required to bless them. Jesus tells the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector to people who were attempting to use the law in this way. They were trying to use the law to work up favor with God, as if it were based on works. In Luke 18, we find the parable. Jesus says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified 
rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisee in this parable trusted himself for his righteousness. And the tax collector threw himself on God's mercy alone. And Jesus says that it was the tax collector who was justified by God. And the Pharisee was not. The Pharisee pursued the law to try to gain a righteousness through works, through keeping the law. And the tax collector was seeking a righteousness that comes through faith. He did not trust in himself for his right standing with God. And that's why he was justified, declared righteous. And that was all intro. But it's necessary because we face two dangers when we come to the law or when the law is given to us. And it's the same two dangers that God's people always face. It's the danger of ancient Israel and the Pharisee who tried to use the law that God gave to earn a righteousness before him as if it were based on works. And the other danger of thinking that the law is not useful at all for the redeemed, but it was specifically given to the redeemed to teach us how to live faithfully before God. And Jesus was explicit about the importance of the law, the continuing value of it. In Matthew chapter 5, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never, never enter the kingdom of heaven. So how does looking at Deuteronomy 5 teach us how to be blessed in the new year? Well, Psalm 1 tells us, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is on the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. The law of the Lord is the very way God blesses us. The law of the Lord is actually one of the highest blessings God has ever given. And of course, we screw it up with our sin. But that doesn't mean that it's not a great blessing. Moses says it. Paul says it. The Psalter opens with it. Jesus himself says it. Blessing. Another word for which is happiness, joy, comes from hearing these statutes and rules, learning them, and being careful to do them. 
So the question is, how are we supposed to live in the right and proper way as concerns the law of God? And that's what we're going to spend the bulk of the rest of the time. We're going to look again, look with me again at Deuteronomy chapter 5. Moses is telling the people all they need to know before they enter the promised land. The preamble. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time, to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is the preamble. But the purpose is clear. Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today. And you shall learn them and be careful to do them. Hear these statutes and rules, learn them and be careful to do them. And Moses makes it explicitly clear that this covenant is for the people who are hearing him speak it right now. It's not just a bit of interesting history. This is for all of us here alive today. And remember what we just read from Matthew 5, that Jesus affirmed every bit of it. He lit the mountain on fire and came down to declare his word to his people. He said, I've saved you and now this is how you are to live. Never seeking to earn your place before God, but always trusting in him alone for your righteousness. And nevertheless, seeking to live according to these commandments by working hard to hear them, learn them, and do them. So we've already heard the Ten Commandments read aloud. Now, let's look at each one more closely so we can learn them. Learn what they mean, what they require, and how to obey them. And each commandment could be a series of sermons on their own. And I do think I will preach a sermon on each one of them before going back to 1 Peter. But for now, we'll just give it a brief, brief look at each. First commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Now this seems pretty straightforward to us because we've lived in a culture where monotheism has been the norm for nearly 2,000 years. But this commandment itself is what created the culture, monotheism. And monotheism, by the way, just means the belief in only one God. Having no other gods before the Lord doesn't just mean that he takes the first place in a line, but it also means that we don't have any other gods on the list. Because before, in this command, doesn't just mean spatially in front of, 
It means within the sight of. There are no other gods in God's sight. This isn't like a pantheon like Hercules, the Greek gods, where they all have their little place and they all have their little domain. No, there are no other gods. Other gods don't exist. No one else is on the level with the Lord. So we mustn't put anything there. Second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, oftentimes this is shortened to don't worship idols. But that's really contained in the first command. This second command is actually don't make idols. Now, that sounds very similar, but they're not the same. We must only worship the Lord as God, first commandment. Then, we must only worship him in the way that he commands us to do so. We can't carve an image and then say, this is the Lord, well, let's worship it. Because God is not shown in an image. He's not a creature. He's not of this creation. He is the creator. So we can't capture his likeness in any created thing. We cannot do it and we must not do it. Now Aaron tried with a golden calf and the Israelites worshipped it, but they were not giving worship to the true God. And because we can't offer worship to any created thing, we can't worship images we have made to capture what we think God looks like. Third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. His name is holy. Whether it be Jesus, God, Christ, Lord, or Judah's priest. And it's to be treated as holy. Not used in the place of a four-letter word when you hit your thumb with a hammer. And now you may say, well, I didn't mean anything by it. I don't really think about it. Sometimes I just say it. Well, what in the world does in vain mean? Vain, vanity, worthless, right? As if it doesn't mean anything. So if you say, well, I'm not using his name in vain, I just don't think about it. That's what using his name in vain means. His name is holy, so don't take it in vain. Fourth commandment. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, or your male servant or your female servant, or your ox or your donkey, or any of your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. 
that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Now this is probably the commandment out of all ten that we think to be the least important today. Now we might kind of pass over the first commandment and say, well, everyone is an idolater. Everyone puts something before God. But, but we at least know that we're breaking it when we do that. But so many Christians even are willing to completely dispense with the Sabbath as something as if it only belongs to the Old Testament. And this command, as with all the others, truly needs at least a sermon, a full sermon for proper treatment. But for today, let's remember that Jesus said he did not come to abolish the law, not even one hen stroke of it. And the pattern and practice of the early church, which is given to us in the New Testament, was to gather on Sunday, which they called the Lord's Day, for worship. And we are commanded not to forsake that gathering. And there's more to it, like how we treat those under our authority. But this is a start. It's the Lord's day, not ours. And so he is in charge of how we use it. Fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you that your days may be long, and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now, while we may ignore the fourth, we tend to justify our disobedience to this fifth commandment in other ways. We think about the ways, whether they're perceived or real, that our parents may have hurt us, and we think that that means we get a free pass to dishonor them and trample their reputations in our conversations with others. So how do you honor your parents? Well, we can start by recognizing all the blessings that they have been for us and thank them for it. Maybe you're thinking, I have really rotten parents, maybe abusive parents. How do I honor them? Well, you could recognize that these are the parents that God gave you in his wisdom and in his love. And you can trust him in that. And then you can stop bad-mouthing them every chance you get, either when talking with others or in your own heart. There's no asterisk or footnote for this or any of the Ten Commandments. We don't get a pass. And if you're looking for one, that's a sure sign that you're trying to avoid keeping it. But what will a lame excuse do for you when you stand before God on the last day? God did not stutter. He spoke plainly. He lit a mountain on fire and wrote it on tablets of stone with his own hand. Honor your father and your mother. Sixth commandment. You shall not murder. Now, commandments 6 through 9 are pretty plain to us, at least in their basic meaning. But it's clear through how they're applied in the rest of the scriptures that God means for them to affect not just our outward actions, but also our hearts. 
And I'll let Christ speak to this commandment. Matthew 5, he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. All right, that's this commandment here. And Christ gives us an interpretation. He says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Seventh commandment. And you shall not commit adultery. And Christ says of this one, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Eighth commandment, and you shall not steal. If it's not yours, don't take it, right? It's pretty straightforward. But there's a lot that grows up out of this commandment as well as all of them. I'll leave this as well to its own sermon, but even things like property rights, Even things like personal property, that whole idea, among many other things, comes from this commandment. Don't steal. Ninth commandment. And you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Don't lie. Period. Full stop. Don't lie. Try that one for an hour, or a day, or a week. Don't lie to gain favors. Don't lie to save face. Don't lie to protect someone's feelings. Don't lie to your wife or husband. Don't lie to your parents. Don't lie to your children. Don't lie to your boss. Don't lie to your employees. Don't lie to the government. Don't lie to God. And more than that, be truthful. Keep your word. Tenth commandment. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, what does it mean to covet? It means to look at something that isn't yours and wish that you had it. Now, probably the most evil form of covetousness is envy. Envy is not just wanting something that isn't yours. It's also hating the person who has it. It's not just thinking, I want my neighbor's car. It's also thinking, and he doesn't deserve it. Now, sometimes it's hard to know what is covetousness and what is just, you know, ambition, having a goal. Are you trying to get that raise at work so you can buy that new house because you covet your neighbor's house? Or... Are you trying to get that raise at work to buy that house so your family has enough room to really grow into? 
Now, it's hard to discern that, but it's helpful to recognize that the opposite of covetousness is contentment. So, do you covet? Well, are you content? Are you content with what you have? Or do you want more? Are you content with what God has given you? Or do you think that you should have something that he hasn't decided to bless you with? Are you wiser than God? So be content and do not covet. So that's a very brief look at the Ten Commandments. And congratulations are in order because you've been blessed. Right? Blessed is the one who meditates on God's commandments. You are the recipients of God's righteous rules. And you have heard them, and we've learned a little bit more about them. And that's two of the three that Moses commands when he gave the law to the people. And the final one is this. Be careful to do them. And again, we'll look at each commandment in its own sermon in the coming year as I have occasion to preach so that we can learn the fullness of these commands that God has given us. But for right now, what you have already heard and learned, be careful to do these Ten Commandments. And it's my hope, my hope that everyone who heard these laws of God has felt in their own souls the inability to keep them. I hope that you haven't listened half-heartedly thinking that you are keeping them pretty well. I thank you, God, that I am not like that other guy. I show up to church. I've never done drugs. I've never cheated on my wife. I've never killed anybody. I don't tell big lies. Only small ones. That's just the familiar hope of the Pharisee in the parable Jesus told. I'm doing all right. I'm keeping the laws of God pretty well. I'm trusting in myself for righteousness. I'm definitely doing better than other people. If that's you, are you prepared to trust that argument on the day of judgment? When God opens the heavens wide and comes down to say to him, Oh yes, God, I see you are holy. You've torn a hole in the sky and lit it on fire. And now I come before you with this great hope in my hands. Here, Lord, accept this. I'm better than that guy over there. God won't grade on a curve. He has told us the standard by which he will judge the world. Every man and woman, child and aged. Hear, O Israel, you people of God, hear. These statutes and rules that I speak in your hearing today, these ten words, the Ten Commandments, the law of God, 
And if you think that you can do it on your own, if you think that you've got what it takes to be righteous before God, you think you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and I've got very little hope for you. My only hope is that God's word would be like a hammer and break your stony heart in pieces. Because it's dead. Don't pursue the righteousness of the law as if it were based on works. Jesus says in that parable quoted earlier that the Pharisee who trusted in himself for his righteousness did not go away justified. Which is just another way of saying he went away condemned. But the other man, the tax collector, who did not even lift up his eyes, but beat on his chest and cried, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He went away justified. You can go away justified too. Because you can pursue the law of God by faith and have a righteousness that you can't have on your own. The word Jesus put into the mouth of that tax collector is a word for all of us. He's there standing in the temple praying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he went away justified. Because literally he's saying, he's asking God, I'm in this temple where sacrifice is made for my sins, Lord. Let those sacrifices be sufficient. Let the blood of these animals that are killed on the altar be taken in place of my blood instead. Just as the lamb's blood on the Hebrew doorposts in Egypt protected them from the tenth plague, from the death of the firstborn, as the angel passed over their houses. The ancient Israelites looked to the blood of lambs on their doorposts for God's wrath to pass over them. The Jews in Jesus' time, like this tax collector, looked to the blood of all the bulls and goats sacrificed in the temple for God's wrath to pass over them. And we today can look to blood. We must look to blood for God's wrath and not come upon us. The blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the blood of Jesus Christ shed 2,000 years ago on a hill far away on an old rugged cross. We can look to that blood for our salvation. And we can cry, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and trust that our righteousness does not come from our works or our heritage or anything in ourselves at all. There's a table set before us. And don't let the size of it fool you. Heaven and earth 
do not contain all the blessings that are signified by that table. Because Jesus Christ has given us this so that we can look right here even, right now, at this table, what's set here. We can see his broken body and his blood shed for us. On the night in which our Lord Jesus was betrayed. He took bread and broke it and said to his disciples, this is my body broken for you. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you. The Apostle Paul says, as long as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's death and resurrection in that, right? But make no mistake, there's death in that. We have to proclaim his death. We have to. Because if we don't, then we're the ones that have to die. The wrath of God for all the sins, the breaking of his commandments, transgressing his law, could be on us, but God gave sacrifice. If your hope is not in the righteousness that is signified in the table, don't don't come and participate. Because Jesus is not a savior of sinners who won't trust him. But if you have faith in Jesus Christ, If you trust him, and by that I mean if you are willing to say and look at God's law and say, I can't do this, I see that it's good and I can't do this, and then look to Jesus and say, he's done it, and he's done it for me, then the table is for you, come to the table. Come to Jesus Christ. Trust in him for your righteousness. Then by faith, live according to righteousness. You are God's people. He has saved you with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. A mighty nail-pierced hand. And arms outstretched upon a cross. He has saved you. The blood of the Lamb spread over you. He has saved you. He's blessed you with his righteous rules. So in a moment I'll pray and the worship team will come up and then you can come forward 
and received the bread and the, the juice. Christ's body broken for you. Christ's blood shed for you. If you trust him, that's the, that's the requirement. If you trust him. And parents, with young children, you can, you can use this opportunity if they, have, if they have trusted Jesus, if they have made that proclamation, if you had that discussion with them, then please have them come. And if not, then use it as a time to explain to them, to tell them about our great need to trust Jesus and his great love for us in shedding his blood for us. And by the way, if in the last five minutes or so, you went from someone who didn't trust him to someone who did, the table's for you. The thief on the cross was saved even though he had only a few minutes left of breath. Not how long you've had faith in Jesus, it is the Jesus you've had faith in that lets you come to this table. So let's pray. Lord our God, you you are the Holy One of Israel. You're the Savior of your people. You've done it in a way that no one no one would have planned or comprehended. You've done it by showing your mighty power. You've done it by showing such humility to die a death on a cross. That the wrath and punishment of our sins would not fall upon us, but fell upon you. And so, Lord, as we come to your table, which you have given us, which you have purchased for us, would our faith in you be strengthened? Would our love for you grow? Would we pursue the law by faith and live according to your righteous rules, glory in all that you have given us, all that you have commanded us, have a righteousness that is not our own, but is most certainly given to us from another, from Jesus Christ, our Lord. May you turn us around, make us alive. Holy Spirit, would you put breath into our nostrils to live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. It's his name we pray. Amen.